Well, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started. Well, I'm thankful for this opportunity to once again gather with you to worship our great and our glorious God and to open his word, which the Bible tells us is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Dear ones, our God has dealt so tenderly with us. And my desire is that you would think and dwell on that precious reality today. Consider the tender mercies of our God to us. He has treated us as sons and daughters of which he is well pleased with. Brothers and sisters, our Father delights in us. He loves us. And therefore, in response, based upon the tender mercies of our God, may we worship him today in the beauty of holiness. And even as we think about that, no doubt our hearts are pricked as we consider the reality that we in and of ourselves are not holy. There is more sin and darkness in my heart and in your heart than we really care to admit. And so how much do we stand in need of a righteousness not our own? to be given to us as a gift, if we would be able to stand in the presence of a holy God this day and to offer him acceptable worship. And not to do so, not to offer this worship in the abject terror of standing before a judge and executioner, but rather to offer our worship in the sweet filial love of a child standing before his father or as a friend standing before the best of friends. Dear ones, this is exactly what this sermon series that we are engaged in is all about. It is all about the answer to that most pertinent question that each of us must ask of ourselves. How can a man, how can I be right before God? How can you stand justified or righteous in the presence of the thrice holy God? Well, the answer to this most important question is to be found in a proper understanding of the doctrine of union with Christ. And so this morning, I want to continue our study of this essential doctrine that we began last week. But before we move forward in our study, I think it would be proper for us to pause and to ask God for his blessings. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand in need of your grace once again. But we do so as your children whom you love. Lord, would you grant us your spirit to illuminate the word so that we might see wonderful things contained therein. Open our eyes and open our hearts that we might worship you acceptably and this to the glory of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's take a couple of minutes to recap what we learned in last week's sermon in order to see how this week's message and for that matter the next two messages will build upon and flow from the foundational principles that were laid down in the first message. If you recall, last week we examined together from Genesis chapter 2 the foundational principle by which God relates to mankind. And what is that foundational principle by which God relates to mankind? It is that God relates to mankind, and yes, that includes you, by way of covenant. We clearly saw that the Bible's own interpretation of God's interactions with Adam in Genesis 
is that God entered into a covenant with Adam. Now, that's not Reformed theologians imposing a system upon the Scriptures. No, as we stated last week, God is his best interpreter. And if he interprets his interaction with Adam as a covenant, then that is the conclusion of the matter. Now, in theology, this covenant that God graciously entered into with Adam is known most commonly as the covenant of works. Now, some theologians may call it the covenant of creation. Others may call it the covenant of life. But most commonly, it is referred to as the covenant of works. Further, we saw that in this covenant with Adam, God promised a reward that was contingent upon Adam's perfect obedience. And the reward that was promised was eternal life. However, we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam was tempted by Satan, and he did not pass the test. He succumbed to the temptation, and he violated the specific stipulation of the covenant of works, which was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of this, we saw that Adam was cursed. However, as we noted last week, what we see in Genesis 3 is that this curse was not just confined to Adam, but rather it was applied to all of Adam's posterity. Now, there are some who deny that this curse was applied to Adam's posterity on account of Adam's sin. But once again, God is his best interpreter. We saw last week that the New Testament's divine interpretation of why this is so, why the curse that Adam earned for his disobedience was applied to all of his posterity. And it was because Adam held a special position known in theology as a federal or covenant head. In other words, Adam covenantally represented all of his posterity, including you and including me. And we saw last week that this revelation concerning Adam's federal headship further informs our minds regarding the foundational principle by which God relates to mankind. And so our conclusion was this. The foundational principle by which God relates to mankind is by way of a covenant made with a federal head who represents humanity. Secondly, last week we saw that this foundational principle by which God relates to mankind, coupled with Adam's failure to keep the covenant, sets the stage for the outworking of God's sovereignly decreed plan of redemption made before the foundation of the world. Now, how does that set the stage, as it were? Well, in this way. If our only hope of receiving the promised reward of life is by way of a covenant perfectly kept by a federal head, then we are in need of a new covenant, a second covenant, because the first covenant, as we have seen, has been broken. There is no hope of life for us in that covenant anymore. There's no hope of life in the covenant of works. It has been broken. And thus, a second covenant with a new federal head is desperately needed. And this new federal head must be one that would succeed where Adam failed. This is exactly what we saw promised to us in Genesis 3.15. God promised that there, would, that there would be one who would come who would in fact succeed where Adam failed. 
Adam failed the test of Satan in the garden. The new Adam, the better Adam, would crush the head of the serpent and in the process of doing so, thus secure the promised reward of life to all whom he represents. In other words, eternal life, the promised reward, can only come to those who are covenantally united to this second Adam, which the scriptures clearly identify as none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 22, is all about the salvation that is offered to sinners through this second covenant arrangement known in theology as the covenant of grace, of which Christ serves as the federal head. And so, with that background in place, I want to let you know where we're going to be going over the next three weeks. The apostolic message of the New Testament is all about this gracious way of salvation that we have just spoken about. In other words, the apostolic message is the gospel. It is the good news of what God has done to save sinners who have broken the covenant of works. And the way that it declares this message is by focusing on the federal head of this covenant of grace that God has made to redeem sinners. And it focuses on the following three aspects of this federal head. First, it focuses on his life. Secondly, it focuses on his death. And then thirdly, it focuses on his glorious resurrection. And so that's what I want to do with you over the next three weeks. This week, we will look at what our federal head, Jesus, accomplished in his life and how union with Christ in his life is essential for our salvation. And Lord willing, we will do the same over the next weeks concerning his death and then also his resurrection. So at this time, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and our text is going to be verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give, give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Well, thus the reading of God's holy and, suffi- holy and sufficient word, and his people said, 
Amen. Now, what we see here in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness should seem very familiar to you. Why, why should this narrative feel so familiar? Well, because it is eerily similar to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We know that Satan is a liar, and he is a murderer. And the scripture is full of accounts of Satan prowling around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. The story of Job is a prime example of this. Satan's request to sift Peter like wheat is another example of this reality. And so what these historical examples show is that Satan is constantly looking to test people. This is one of the reasons that Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. God himself tempts no one, but Satan, the evil one, certainly does. And thus we need to pray that God would protect us from the testing of the evil one. But there are two great tests that Satan engages in that that outrank all the rest in in Scripture. These two tests were the testing of Adam in the garden and the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, the account of which we have just read. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to be able to to work through our text today verse by verse and, and dig out much of the gold that lies in this text. And further, I'm not going to be able to hold up Adam's test in Genesis 3 and and Jesus' test in Matthew 4 and compare and contrast these tests to see what is similar and what is different and thus thus glean much of uh, the gold that we could get from such an endeavor. Instead, I must jump right into what makes these two great tests so significant. And really, this hones in on the actual point of our text today. What makes these two great tests so significant is that these two tests are not like the other tests that we find in Scripture. These particular tests, the test of Adam and the test of Jesus, are of such significance because of the very identity of those who are being tested. You see, in both of these tests, failure or success affects far more than just the one who is being tested. And why is that the case? Well, Scripture tells us, as we've already established, that Adam and Jesus were given the role of being federal heads. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you would turn back once again to Romans chapter 5. We looked at that last week. We'll look at it again this week. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so in verse 19, it talks about the one man's disobedience And we know both from the context of Romans 5 and the whole council of Scripture that this one man's disobedience is referring to the disobedience of Adam. And it says, by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And what this is telling us is that Adam, as a federal head, acted on the behalf of all that he represented. You see, Adam was the federal head of the covenant of works, and he represents 
all of humanity except for Jesus Christ who was born of a virgin. In the same way, verse 19 talks about the one man's obedience. Again, we know from the context of this chapter and the whole council of Scripture that, that this is referring that what this is referring to is the obedience of Jesus Christ, who is also a federal head. Christ, as we have established, is the federal head of the covenant of grace. And he represents all of his people that were given to him as a gift by his Father in the pre-temporal covenant of redemption. So in the same way that Adam's disobedience was credited to the account of all whom he represented, so Christ's obedience was credited to the account of all whom he represented. Now, what does that have to do with our text today? Well, it has to do everything with our text. What this means is that what took place in the Judean wilderness 2,000 years ago has eternal significance for you and for me. You see, your very eternal destiny was hanging in the balance while Jesus was being put to the test. Now, there are certain events recorded in Scripture that we easily identify with because we know that in those events, all of God's people were on the heart and mind of our Savior. One such event is in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, where Jesus prays specifically for us. And so when you read John 17, you know that you were on the mind of Christ in that very moment. And of course, perhaps the most familiar one is to us is when Jesus suffered and died on the cross. We know that all of us people, including you and me, if we are in fact believers, were on the heart and mind of Christ while he suffered and died on that cross. Well, this is also true concerning the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Because Jesus, as our federal head, who was born under the law, was required to fulfill that law on our behalf if we would be saved. And so you were on his heart as he was being tested. He knew that he had to succeed, that to, he had to, to pass that test in order for you to be saved. And so when you read the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness moving forward, I hope you will see that it is much more than simply an historical account given to us as an example of how to live. Now, can we draw from that text practical examples of how to overcome sin through the means of memorizing Scripture? Of course we can. The psalmist will say, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But is that the point of the text where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness? No. As I stated earlier, our eternal destiny was literally hanging in the balance as Jesus was being tempted. We should read this text on the edge of our seats because our very souls depend on the outcome of this test. And when we read of Jesus defeating Satan in this battle, we should breathe a sigh of relief and then celebrate and worship our great Savior. You see, that, that, that's what this text is all about. Now, I want to quickly cover three gospel truths found in this text, and I trust that you will see the necessity of your personal union with Christ on account of these truths. First, the first gospel truth that we see from this text is that in this text, we see the sinlessness of Jesus on display. The New Testament emphatically declares the fact that Jesus was sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states that Jesus knew no sin. 
Hebrews 4.15 states that in every respect he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then, of course, 1 John 3.5 where it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So the Bible puts it forward as an absolute fact that Jesus was sinless. But in our passage today, we see Jesus accomplishing this task of being the spotless Lamb of God. And as the Apostle John states, the Gospels record the life of Jesus for one great purpose. And that purpose is that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And so, brothers and sisters, look upon the sinlessness of your Savior this morning and glory in what he has done. He is the hero of the story, and we are to stand in amazement of him. And if there be any unbeliever here this morning, look to Jesus. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You are guilty of sin. But this cannot be said of Jesus. He was sinless and thus qualified to be the sin-bearing substitute that you so desperately need. The second gospel truth that I want you to see in this passage is the active obedience of Christ. You see, Jesus' sinlessness was, was not something that he accomplished in a vacuum or something he simply accomplished for the sake of being sinless. Remember earlier we saw that Jesus is a federal head. This means that Jesus' obedience was not only for his own sake, but for the sake of all those whom he represents in the context of the covenant arrangement known as the covenant of grace. Thus, Jesus' obedience is necessary for us because righteousness is a requirement for acceptance with God. Did you know the Bible says that you must be perfect in order to go to heaven? God says you must be perfect as I am perfect. There is no imperfect person that can get into heaven. You have to be absolutely perfect, absolutely righteous in order to enter into God's heaven. Well, that's a big problem for us. Because on the one hand, we are sinful. And on the other hand, we have no positive righteousness of our own that is acceptable in the sight of God. Thus, we have two massive problems barring us from the reward of eternal life. Well, it is through the passive and active obedience of Christ that these two great problems are resolved. On the one hand, in the passive obedience of Christ, which is, of course, his death on the cross, Christ addresses our sin problem. He pays the penalty for our sins in his passive obedience. And Lord willing, we're going to deal with that some next week. But that is where many people stop in their presentation of the gospel. And to do so is to stop short of what Christ actually accomplished and further to stop short of what the gospel actually is. Not only did he die the death that we should have died, but he also lived the life that we should have lived. And so in Christ's active obedience, that is, his keeping the law of God perfectly, being sinless, he addresses our second great problem, which is our lack of positive righteousness. You see, if all Christ did was pay the penalty for our sins, then we still would have no right to enter into God's heaven. We have to be more than blank slates. We have to actually be counted righteous 
by the thrice holy God in order to enter into the purity of the presence of, of the God who dwells in light which no man can approach. And thus, the active obedience of Christ is necessary for our salvation. And this leads to a third gospel truth from this passage. We have just stated that we are in need of this positive righteousness in order to be right before God. Well, it's wonderful that Jesus was sinless. And it's wonderful that he perfectly obeyed on behalf of all of his people. But how can you benefit from the sinlessness and the active obedience of Christ? Well, the benefits of the work of Christ come to us through what is called union with Christ. We must be in Christ to receive this righteousness that is necessary for our salvation. And so this righteousness must be credited to your account, and this can only take place through the instrument of faith. Our confession of faith in chapter 11, paragraph 1, makes the following statement concerning the necessity of having Christ's active obedience imputed to us if we would be saved. That passage reads as follows. Those, it says, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's act of obedience, there's our word, unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. And so, do you see how important Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11 is in light of this? If Christ failed in the wilderness, there would be no righteousness for you. There would be no hope for you because you were in need of a righteousness not of your own. And if our federal head failed in that testing in the wilderness, we're, we're doomed. There is no hope for us. And so coming back full circle to the beginning of the sermon. How can a man be right with God? How can you stand justified and righteous in the presence of a holy God? Well, the answer is, you must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And there's only one way for that to happen, dear ones. You must believe. You must trust. You must place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing the promise that all who call upon the name of Christ will be saved. Dear ones, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. He is the One who has ascended the hill of the Lord. And He stands as one mighty to save. He is the skull-crushing seed of the woman. He is the One who has conquered. And the Father is well pleased with Him. And so, the Gospel call to you is this. Come to Him by faith. And receive from the very hand of Christ the righteousness that you need 
to be made right with God. My brothers and my sisters, everything that you need, everything that you need is found in Christ. Beloved, may we glory in the doctrine of union with Christ. And even more so, may we glory in the tender mercies of God that has so graciously brought us into that union. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to know about the doctrine of union with Christ and to be able to state what it is. It's a whole, it's a whole other thing to be one who is a participant in that, to be brought into that union by the very grace of God. And if you are a believer in Christ, that is your, that is your blessed state. God in His grace has brought you into union with His Son, and you are the recipient of all the blessings that accompany that union. Further, we talked about how in, in the covenant, the covenant of works, the promise reward was what? It was life. It was broken. The covenant of grace, what's the promise reward? Life. It is only through union with Christ that we can receive that promised reward of life. That is the greatest blessing of union with Christ. We receive the very promised reward of life. And what is the definition of life? The definition of life is not just mere existence. Those who are in hell are alive, but do they have life? No. They are, by definition, dead. The definition of death is to be separated from God. The definition of life is to have fellowship with the one true God. Union with Christ is to have fellowship with the one true God. That is life and life eternal. And so on account of this, may we offer him acceptable worship today. Let's pray. Holy Father, truly our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Thank you for sending your son to be our federal head, to be the one who perfectly satisfied the demands of your holy law so that through his passive and his active obedience that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, Father, what a blessing. As we are aware of our sin and the very blackness of our hearts, to trust and believe that you see us as perfectly righteous in your holy sight. Father, thank you for the blessing of union with your Son. Would you root us and ground us in this truth so that we might abound in worship and in love and in good works and all of this to the glory of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.